Good morning. Hey, wonderful. It is great to see everyone that is here this morning. God bless you for being here. We, we thank you from the bottom of our heart. As Terry was just singing the song that we were just singing, greater things are yet to come. There are greater things still to be done, but we know there is no one like our God to get it done. And we praise him and thank him for that this morning. And we know that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And thank you. On behalf of the Pastor Search Committee, we welcome Dr. Rodney Navy and his wife, Dr. Dr. Donna Navy, in our presence with us this morning. Rodney will be preaching in view of a call to be our new senior pastor. There will be a vote immediately taken at the end of this service. If you did not get a ballot when you come in, there will be an opportunity for you to be able to get that ballot just in case there were some around where you were not worried. So with that taking place, Rodney, come preach the word. Thank you. So honored to stand behind this pulpit today. What a blessing just to be able to look across this congregation and see so many good smiling faces, a few waves as well. Uh, You have warmly welcomed us uh, home. Uh, We we feel like this is a home for us. As we spent nine years, uh, over nine years serving alongside of you here. And just to think about the great work that God has done in this city through this body of believers over those years And so I'm honored to be here in part as a candidate, but part of my prayer for this week is that I would not just be a candidate, but I would be a messenger. That's what I really believe that God would have a senior pastor to be a messenger of the word. So let's go to him in prayer and let's ask him to speak to us today. Father, we are grateful that we can gather with your people in times like these, it's made us even more thankful that we can gather, that you have provided a place, you have provided the freedom, you've even provided uh, a way that we can do this safely, and we come in honor of you today. What a great, awesome, powerful God you are. Even as we sung your praises this morning, it's only fitting that you as our great God would be praised and would be worshipped. And now as we open up your word, we pray that we might understand what you have inspired to be written down. Let this text speak to us. We pray that we would be equipped to do the work that you've given us here in Greensboro and all across the world. Bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's easy to live life like we're entitled, isn't it? We don't necessarily say that, but whenever we begin to complain and grumble and gripe about certain things, we're more or less saying, I deserve this, or I deserve that, or I deserve better. Jesus plainly said in John 16, 33, the verse that really leads us into the chapter that we're going to focus on, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's not, you may, it's not uh, if certain circumstances occur in your life. He said, you will have tribulation. 
Life is not going to be easy on this planet. As long as we're on earth and in this flesh, there's going to be hatred, division, prejudice, suffering, pain and difficulty. It's life on planet earth until Jesus comes back. Jesus did, however, come the first time. He came on a rescue mission. He took on human flesh. John in his gospel begins with that statement. In the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Later on in that chapter, verse 14, he said, And the Word became flesh. Jesus came on a rescue mission. At the appointed time, he lived a life that we could not live, and he died the death that we deserved. One of his followers, John, wrote this gospel to describe this rescue mission so that people could place their faith in Jesus Christ. And then, after compiling this work and after being inspired by the Spirit to write it, he gave us our marching orders. Now, if you start with John's purpose in John chapter 20, you see why he wrote this gospel. In verse 30, this is what he said. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus' plan was to come and to show what God looks like. He perfectly unfolded a perfect life. He made God known to us. And as he came and through his death, through his resurrection, he provided what we needed to be saved, to be rescued, to be made right with God. And God's plan is to gather a people, is to gather his church together so that one day when he returns, he will take us home to be with him. By the time we get to John 17, Jesus' mission is almost complete. That is, his first coming. What we find is that soon he would die, be resurrected, and that he would go and be seated at the right hand of the Father. The mission of changing the world, uh, his part, he completed, and now he transfers that to his followers, to his people. His farewell address, basically John 13 through 16, is preparing his followers for this great assignment that they've been given to change the world. They will need the Holy Spirit as their comforter, as their guide, as their teacher. Jesus tells them it's good, it's even, it's even better for them that he goes away. Because when he goes to be seated at the right hand of his Father, the Father and the Son send the Spirit who will indwell and who will help his people do his work. As he gets ready for this arrest and for his crucifixion, he takes some time that night to pray to his Father in heaven. As he prays, he prays first for himself, for the glory of God. He prays that what he does will bring glory to his Father. He reveals the motivation of the Son, and it is the glory of God. And then he prays for the twelve. Verses 6 through 19, he reveals the prominence of the Word, how God had given them the Word, and they would establish that Word that we ourselves would have access today. And then in verses 20 through 26, the place that we're going to spend some time this morning, he prays for his church. He prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for believers all through the century, 
all through the centuries that we might accomplish the work that God has given us. Pick up with me in verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask for these only, the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as Father, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for before he ascended back into heaven, before his death, before his resurrection, before his ascension, it's significant that we find this particular petition being offered to his father. I would say this is the petition that will change the world. He's given his followers the word, and the word has the power to transform hearts. It is what uh, helps us to understand the story of redemption, the gospel, what God has done to restore people to himself. He's given us his word. Jesus has just told them that they would not be able to do this by themselves. They would need the help of God through the Spirit. And so what else is there for them to do as the body? What, what is it that God is concerned with? What is it that Jesus is praying for them? And we see it very clearly in verse 21, that they may all be one. Those who would believe in me, everybody who would place their faith in Jesus Christ, who would understand, I am a sinner, I am lost, I am without God, without hope. And at the same time, understanding God did what I needed for my salvation. He sent his son to die on the cross. He paid the price. He raised him from the dead, showing he not only was willing to pay the price, but he has power over sin. And those who place their faith in Christ, they are made new. They are restored to that right relationship with God. So as you look at verse 20, those who would believe on the disciples' word as this gospel message is proclaimed... The followers of Jesus were given this word. Ephesians chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, talk about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This word was inspired. It was given to them that they might write down the very words of God. We're one because we believe this same book. We're one because we have the same spirit who lives in us. And Jesus is saying, act like you're one. In this prayer, Father, help them to be one. They will make disciples of all the nations. How are they going to be one? Well, it's focused on the Word. It's in the power of the Spirit. The early church demonstrated the answer to this prayer. Remember Acts 2.42? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in prayer and in breaking of bread and in fellowship. 
They were one together around uh, that community and around the Word of God. And you know what God did through them? It goes on to say in Acts 2 verse 47, And the Lord added daily those who were being saved. A church that is one. A church that God has brought together that's on the same page, has the same mission. That's what God does through them. If you look on again back in John 17 and verse 20, let's, let's get the result of this. If they're one, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as Father, you're in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Just as John is writing, so that people will believe. How will the world believe? Well, they will believe. Because God has given us the assignment as His church to take this message. And we do that as one. We do that in unity. We do that as a body. Have you ever thought, why does the church not make more difference in the world around us? Could it be there's a lack of oneness in the body? Could it be that we all have our own agendas, we all have our own ideas, we all want what we want, and we've not said, God, whatever you want to do. God, help me to be a part of the body in unity. Help me to be one with the other believers in this body. I like what Dustin Binge said about how... God has the power to bring about this kind of oneness. Jesus is asking for it, so we know it's the will of God. But can God really do this? And and he said, the same gospel that reconciles a holy, perfect God with a depraved, vile, dead person is able to reconcile a person and a person. Can God bring about unity? Yes. Can God make us one? Yes. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking for, not for the purposes of unity, but for the purposes of the gospel, that in our unity we can take the gospel to the world. The petition that will change the world. Think with me secondly about the pattern that will change the world. We have a model of what oneness looks like. And as you think about verse 21, he said that they may all be one just as Father, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The fellowship of the Trinity is our model. When we think about the oneness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, God is one, and yet He exists eternally in three persons. And what the Father has in mind, the Son has in mind. What the Son has in mind, the Spirit has in mind. They are equal. They are one. They're in perfect unity and harmony. That's the model that we as a church are to follow. It's not always easy. We're in process. It's going to have its bumps and its bruises. But this is our goal, that we would follow the pattern of the Father and the Son. Even as God began this world in a generous way so that He could share His glory, He said, let us make man in our image. God was on the same page, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all through history, we see that even when Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth, He was on the same page as his father. Even when he went to the cross and it was going to cost him his life, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He was one with the father. How about us? 
Are we following the model that God has set for us? That's what Jesus prayed. May they be one as we are one, Father. Notice also the people that will change the world. In verse 21, he said that they may all be one. Focus on that word all for a minute. You might say, well, Rodney, I I can understand a few people being one, but all? All the followers of Christ being one? Isn't that asking for a lot? Well, yes. This would be an incredible act of God for a group of people in a local church to all be on the same page doing what God's called them to do. What a miraculous thing. Only, only through prayer, only through faith, only through the prayer of the Son of God could we even imagine such a thing as this. Think about all the people that make up Lawndale Baptist Church. The generations. Old and young alike, right? When we think about all the generations, it almost how, how could they, everybody be on the same page because this, this younger crowd, they want this. This older crowd wants this. And God is saying, it's not about you. It's about me. If we don't get that right in all the places of our life, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. When we start looking at marriage and we say, you know what? I'm not getting what I want. My needs aren't being met. And it's all I, I, I. Our marriage is going to be in trouble. It's not about you. It's not even about your spouse and you meeting all of your spouse's needs. It's really all about him. And when we make it about him, the other things will take care of themselves. There's an age divide in our world today. It's not just in churches. It's across the world. But the church shouldn't be like the world. We should have a church where old and young alike love each other, care for each other, concerned about each other, invest in each other. This older person should be encouraging and loving and blessing a younger person. This younger person should be serving and loving and encouraging that older person that they may all be one. Even with ethnicity, we should be one. The world says divide and the world says each to his own. And God says, no, I made you all. I, you're all in the image of God. No matter the, the color of your skin, no matter the origin uh, of your, your family ancestry, it doesn't matter. We're all in the image of God. What a statement it makes to the world when the church is different from the world. When, when we're one generationally, when we're one ethnically, and when we're one new members and old members alike. It's easy to have turf wars too, isn't it? Well, you haven't been around very long, or you, you've been around too long. <laughs> that they all may be one. We're a family on mission, and God chose to do His work through His people. There have been times I've thought, God, surely you have a better plan than me, than us. But this is, this is what God ordained. This is what He had planned from the beginning, that His Son would come and He would train His disciples. He would give them His Word. And then He would give them His Spirit. And they would, they would multiply. They would share this Word. And we would be where we are today in the year 2021. This is God's design that His Word to be multiplied. The mission of the church is nothing other than the continuation of the mission of its Lord. The head of the church, 
Jesus Himself. Every disciple is a missionary. Kingdom citizens doing kingdom work. Now let's talk about, fourthly, the process that will change the world. The process, when you look in verse 23... It's pretty clear. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. That doesn't mean that we're going to arrive there yesterday or today. It means that we have a process of growth and of learning and of becoming. But there is a goal and that's perfect oneness. That we would be on the same page doing the same work. Doing it for the same Lord, Jesus Christ. The process. Now, there are churches that are all over the spectrum as far as where they are. There's, there is uh, the perfect unity that we see described here in John 17. But then we come all the way over and maybe one example that's extreme is the Corinthian church. Remember how divided they were? Paul just... Problem after problem was digging it out with them, confronting them, saying, You gotta get this right. You got as a matter of fact, you're you're so not one together that you're doing more damage in taking the Lord's Supper than you're doing good. Isn't that pretty stark that he would make that claim in 1 Corinthians chapter eleven? He said, I I I abhor that so much that some among you are sick and some have even died. That's how much Jesus loves his church and how pure he wants his church, how united, how one. He wants his church not divided. So, so how are we going to get there? Let's, let's do a quick Bible study. I, I want to show you a few things that God, th- this is a consistent theme through Scripture. This is not just one idea. I, I'm not just pulling an obscure text out and saying, well, oneness is needed and we should all be one. This is the theme all through the letters. Look with me over in Romans chapter 12. Hold your place in John and we'll just look at a couple of passages here. John, excuse me, Romans chapter 12 in verse 10. This is one of those principles for us if we're going to be one. Love one another with brotherly affection. I I love that family idea. That's, That's who we are, brothers and sisters in Christ. Love one another with brotherly affection. Here it is. Outdo one another in showing honor. That that would change the dynamic of a church. What if what if we had people who who just it was in their heart, I am I am going to outdo this other person in honoring them. I'm going to speak a word of encouragement. I'm going to be more of a servant. Can you imagine the kind of servanthood that a church would develop? If everybody had it as their goal, I'm going to outdo honoring each, this other person. You, you see, we get it wrong because the world's telling us what we deserve. The world is telling us, get what you want. The world is telling you to demand your way. And God is saying, outdo each other in showing honor. Don't make it about yourself. Honor the people around you. It's a different kind of, of thinking. Over in Romans 15, verse 7. Let's just keep it going here for a few minutes. Romans 15. Look with me in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So easy as a church, especially, 
uh, in a time like this, just to, well, if people want to come, they'll come. God's saying, welcome. There's some, there's some intentionality here. When, when we are inviting or when folks even do show up at our doorstep, that we would welcome. It's on us. It's not on the guest. It's not on the visitor. It's not on someone who may not even be exactly like us. It's on us. Welcome one another. Do you think God has something in mind here? That someone could show up at a church, someone could be invited, and they could be honored, and they could be treated well, and they could be welcomed and intentionally made to feel a part of the family and to be at home? If that's what Jesus has done for us, I think it's reasonable for us to expect that's what He wants us to do for others. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We could work our way all through 1 Corinthians and talk about this oneness, especially for, uh, chapters 12 through 14, but look over in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 12. That there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Again, it's across the grain for us. In the world we live in, it's across the flesh. It's dying to self to care for each other well. That's what God expects. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. What a great letter. If I, if, I put first, if I put the church at Corinth on one end, I'd put the church at Ephesus on the other end. It, it was a growing, thriving, loving church. But notice what Paul even said to them. Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Jesus gave his all for the church. He purchased it with His own blood. He called us into a relationship with Him. And He's given us a family. And He's saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, what does that look like? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager. Eager to be one, eager to get along, eager to serve together, eager to accomplish the task, the assignment that God has given us of making disciples of all the nations. Even in Philippians, uh, I'm thankful for Dr. David Horner and the work that he's doing right now from the pulpit, working through Philippians. Notice with me in Philippians chapter 2, how he further demonstrates this and calls the church to this. Philippians 2 verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What would it look like in Greensboro, a church that was considering others better than themselves? I think it would, it would make a statement. I think it would be a light on a hill. I think it would be a, a group of people that people would be attracted to because they're seeing what God does, the love that God has shown people that now is being spread among other people. And 
Sometimes people will say, well, I, I love my brother and sister in Christ. And I, I, I want to always be careful to be gentle in that. But if you really do, think with me. 1 Corinthians 13. What if you took all the characteristics of what biblical love is? Love is patient. Could we just spend some time there talking about what it means to be patient with each other? Do you really love each other? How patient are you? How about kind? Are you always kind in how you talk and how you treat others and what you do? And we could just go through the list of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And I think we could all agree we have room to work. A couple of recent articles have come out that I've really appreciated because it speaks to this very issue. And one of the things that uh, was said in one article, it was called, Assume You're Wrong. You see, we're always assuming we're right. Well, I know I'm right. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've thought for sure, I know what I'm talking about, only to find out later, well, maybe I wasn't as right as I thought I was. Now, I know I'm always right when I'm reading the Word of God, right? I mean, we know this is always right and true, but when it comes to my ideas and my opinions and my preferences, I'm not always right. And when someone addresses something with us, whether it's a spouse coming to us or whether it's a friend, a fellow church member, we should assume we're wrong. This person is coming to me. I want to hear this person. Another one of those recent, recent articles, and you can Google these uh, was about what about isms. Maybe you saw that article. I think it's a Gospel Coalition article. What about isms? Because we don't like to take responsibility for our own actions and our own attitudes. And because somebody else did something, well, what about that person? You're calling me out, but what about that person? You, you've seen it in your own home with your kids, right? When you call them out, well, what about her? Or what about him? We like to do that as well. And our world today, there are a lot of bad things that are happening. And we want to excuse it by saying, well, well what about them? What, what, what about what they've done? And that just doesn't hold water. It goes back to the problem Adam had. What about this woman you gave me? She, it's her fault, right? It's a process of becoming perfectly one. And we're not going to achieve it here on earth but that should be our goal. And again, it's not for oneness sake. We're not saying this just to be one to be one and that we can all be happy and have fun together. We're saying it because there is a prize at stake here. And when you see that, you see it repeated a couple of times, like in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see it again in verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Our oneness is one of the best apologetics for Christ. When people ask, well, how does your church do that? They're making disciples and you guys all seem to be on the same page and you're, you're a diverse church and you are welcoming people. How do you do that? Well, it's Jesus in us. It's not us. Left to ourselves, we're not really good people. But when Jesus comes into a person's life, he changes us and we begin to love. And if we don't love people like Jesus does, we have to wonder, is Jesus really in us? 
Because the love that He gives us, it should be spread abroad. It will spill over. It becomes evidence that we have received His love. What becomes pretty typical of churches today are carnal divisions, backbiting, strife, quarreling, jealousy, power grabs. And you know what all of these are? They're stumbling blocks. They're tools of the enemy to sidetrack us. The one who wants to devour, the one who wants to steal, the one who wants to kill and destroy. He doesn't want the church to accomplish his task. We have an enemy within ourselves and the enemy himself that we have to fight so that we don't become that stumbling block. Well, there's one more thing I want you to see from this text about how Jesus changes the world. It's the place that is better than the world. We're talking about this world. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. There's going to be struggles. It's a process even as as a follower of Christ to keep moving in Christ's likeness and to to be one in our, our mission and our assignment. But what keeps us going is that there is a better place. We're not home yet. Heaven is going to be the perfect place when we get there. And I love what Jesus says as he closes out this prayer in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I love that Jesus says, I desire for them to be with me. What a great, great thought. I relate it to one of my kids when they come home. All four of our kids are married. They have kids now. And when they come home and they knock on the door, they don't knock on the door, but let's just say they would knock on the door. I don't say, hey, I'm busy today. Come back another day. And I grab them and I, I am so thrilled they're home and I'm sad when they leave. I I want them to be there. I love them. And our elder brother, he's waiting. Your elder brother, Jesus, is waiting. And he's going to come back. And he's going to take you to be with him where he is. He's been preparing a place. John 14 is a promise. That's what gives us peace in this world. He's preparing a place and one day he's going to come back and he's going to take us to be with him. And there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more divisions. There'll be no more dying. There'll be no more suffering. There'll, there'll be no more prejudice. There'll, there'll, all of that will be gone. And as one voice from people, all nations, all languages, all ethnicities, We're going to stand around the throne of God and we're going to praise Him. Holy, holy, holy. And He's brought us into His presence. Prepare for that day. What what will it be like when you stand before Him? Will you give a worthy offering of this great God and King? All that He's done for you. When you stand before Him, will you be able to say, "I, I served you. I served your church. I did the work that you've given me to do? Or will there be an embarrassment? You know, with knowing this is the heart of Jesus that we might be one, I think it'd be pretty embarrassing to be a divider in the church. 
to not be one, to not move forward, to not do the work that God's given us and to treat each other like brothers and sisters. Live for heaven, not now. Don't get caught up in what you want and what your preferences are. Live for Jesus, not tradition and preferences. Live for the next generation, not yours. God's love in us makes all the difference in the world. What was Jesus willing to do for the church? He died for it. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He died for the church. He purchased it with His own blood. He prayed for the church. And now that He's at the right hand of the Father, He continues to pray. And I have to believe this is part of what He's praying even now. Father, make them one so that, they will, so that the world will believe that You sent me. And He's preparing a place for us. Now, my question for you is, what are you willing to do for Him? Now, I could have asked, what are you willing to do for the church? That's the wrong question. It's like in marriage. It's not me getting my needs met. It's not even my spouse getting her needs met. It's about me doing what God's called me to do and allowing Him to meet our needs and grow us in oneness. And in the church, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about Him. It's not for yourself. It's not even for your brother or sister in Christ that you're sitting near. But it's for Him. I believe that this is a new day for Lawndale. A new opportunity. A look at a fresh start to advance the kingdom. God's called you for this hour. I believe this about you, Lawndale, that God wants you to be one and that you believe that and that you want that and you want to move forward and continue to do the work that He's called you to do in this city. And I'm calling you out. Whether this church calls me to be its senior pastor or not, I'm calling you out to be the agent that He wants to use to change the world. Father, I thank you for these men and women that you would call them to yourself, that you would do everything necessary to make them right with yourself. What a gracious God you are. And I pray that each of us will continue to grow in our love for you so that we can love each other well. God, make this body of believers one in mind and heart and in spirit so that they can do the work you've given them to do and others will place their faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.